You enjoying the service? Well, I hope so. I am. So I'm glad you're here. Thanks for being with us. Got to tell you, last week had an amazing Sunday, Mother's Day. We had 2,850 people here. Just great stuff in our three campuses. Just had a wonderful time. Good stuff celebrating moms, right? And then this week, we have something happening. Uh, we have our Fight Club graduation. Uh, we don't talk about this too much, but we had 230 guys sign up for Fight Club. 134 of them, looks like, are going to make it all the way through. They could get till, till Tuesday. And so that's about 58%. That's actually the highest percentage I think we've ever had a graduate. So let's give them a hand. And also the guys who took the challenge, maybe they didn't make it, but they were man enough to take the challenge, do all that. We're, we're glad to see that. But we want to just give you a little recap of how that went, our chapter this year. Does that look like fun? Well, it's not. All right, no, I just, no, it's good stuff. Yeah, we, we had a great time. We are in a, a series called Winning the Battle for Your Mind. And we're talking about, actually, we started off uh, mentioning that, uh, that science has finally caught up with the Bible, that we're realizing that people can change the way they're thinking, which leads to change behavior, cognitive behavioral therapy, that's called, but uh, that we have 86 billion neurons in our brain, and a neuron is just a, a brain cell that sends and receives information, and actually it has 10,000 connections, each one of those with other neurons in your head, and that makes 860 trillion connections in our brain, pathways of how we think, patterns of thinking that lead to behavior, and all that just says this, that now science, uh, because they've discovered that neuroplasticity is not only in children, but also present in adults, that we can change the way we think. We can change the patterns, the pathways, the connections that cause us to think certain ways. We can change the way we think, and then that therefore changes our behavior. And of course, that's what Scripture has told us 2,000 years ago. In Romans 12, verse 2, it says, we are instructed as believers that we should not conform to the world, but we should be transformed. We should be changed. We should live new lives. And we are transformed by the renewing of our mind. That's right, by the renewing of our mind. And so that's what we've been talking about and uh, great things. And remember, learning biblical truth and then contemplating on it dwelling on it, meditating on it, like Psalm 1 says, contemplating on it, it changes the way we think. And then the more we think that way, the more habitually we tend to think that way, and then the more that changes the way we behave, our actions. So that's what we're kind of focusing on. That's uh, what this series is all about. But to win the battle for our mind requires something, and that is that we understand temptation and the process of temptation in our heads. And actually, James tells us about that in James 1. So we're going to turn to James 1. If you brought your Bibles, and I hope you did, or your devices, you can get ready to do that. Uh, and basically, in James 1... James is going to answer four questions about temptation. First of all, he's going to tell us what temptation is. 
Secondly, he's going to tell us where temptation comes from. Third, he's going to say how, tell us how temptation works in our head, in our life. And then fourth is when, he's going to tell us when we can win over temptation. So you ready? All right, let's do it. So James 1, before I get there, uh, there's a couple things that I want to talk about, and that's this. In the chapter of James, there's a Greek word that shows up several times, and this happens to be a Greek word that is translated two different ways. It has two meanings. And so this Greek word can be translated trials, or even testing, but it's trials, but another way of translating this word is temptation. And it's the context that tells us which meaning, which interpretation, which meaning that it has in every sentence. And I know some of you are thinking, man, that's the problem, you know, with Greek and all these languages. I mean, you have one word and it actually means two different things. How jacked up is that? Yeah, well, you know, we're worse, right? We got love. We have the word love. We can love a cupcake and we can love our wives. That should be two different things, right? Unless you call your wife cupcake and then it gets a little blurred. But that's two different things. Loving a cupcake, loving our wife. But we, we have, Greek has five words for love. We've got one. So let's not be down in, on the Greek language, all right? So here we go. What's the difference? We have these two different words. Now, James, if you've been in James before, a super practical guy. He's writing in a wisdom style from the Old Testament, kind of like Proverbs, nuggets of truth. And in chapter one, he opens his book and he's talking about this word, external trials. He's talking about outside situations and what's happening while he's writing this letter is that believers are being persecuted. Specifically, they're being persecuted uh, economically. And so they're under kind of hard times. And he's writing them about that. And he's talking about the external trials they're going through. You, could even, you can even call it testing. But then at verse 12, between verse 12 and verse 13, he shifts from talking about the external trials that we go through to the internal temptation that comes from us. So that's where it shifts. I want to pick up one verse where, where it's the first way, just to try to make it more clear. And now the version of the Bible we use is NASB, and they do a great job of interpreting the word the way it should be within its context, so you can trust what it's saying there. But I just mentioned that. Good versions do, but sometimes you'll read a version and, and it's a little different. And that's why there's one word that can be translated two different ways. James 1, verse 12. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. That's perisimon. That's, that's the word, trial. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. So that's external. Now in the very next verse, and this is like a hinge verse, he's, he's wrapped up the external pressures, trials, 
And in the next verse, verse 13, he's going to be talking about a, that other meaning of the word, which is the temptations that we all deal with. But before we get there, I think it'd be helpful for us to define, okay, what is temptation? And so here is a, here's a way of looking at it for us today. I think this will help. Temptation is mentally acknowledging options where we either choose to sin or we choose to believe what God says and follow him. Temptation is not a sin, and that's what we're going to get to. So if that's what temptation is, then the next question is, where does temptation come from? And right off the bat, when James shifts to talk about this internal word for temptation, he immediately says, that does not come from God. Verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. So he's saying, Hey, where does temptation come from? First of all, not from God. But when you read this verse, it sort of brings up some questions. I didn't really go into this in the first service, but for God cannot be tempted. Hold it. Jesus was God. Was Jesus tempted? Yeah, he was. Again, it's this different meanings, the two different meanings of this word. Again, verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. God doesn't tempt to do evil because it's contrary to his character. As a matter of fact, uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, no temptation has overtaken you. Now, this is Paul talking about us. No temptation has overtaken you, but such is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, will provide the way of escape also, so that you'll be able to endure it. So what's going on here is not only does God not tempt, and that's tempt in the sense of enticing us to sin, and we're, we're going to look at that a little more in just a moment, but he provides a way out. And we sin when we don't take the exit door that God has provided for us. And that's when we sin. So many try to escape responsibility by claiming victim status and blaming others for their sin. We see this all over the place in our culture today. People claiming, hey, you know, it's not my fault. Uh, I didn't mean to do this. This isn't on me. This happened because of that person. You know, we try to escape responsibility by claiming victim status. That's why also people in their heads, because this is so common in our culture, on the inside, people tend to blame God. And a lot of times, especially People who do church and stuff, they don't want to ever say they blame God. Unless it's something big, they will. Death or something. But on the inside, they're, they're sort of blaming God. And here's the deal. It's easy to blame others for our problems. 
It's easy to say when we're not experiencing everything we want to experience that that's somebody else's fault. And what we do is we avoid personal responsibility. We see this all over in our political culture. You know, our political culture, it just divides people against each other. It force feeds every day into our minds that many people are are part of a victim class. And that appeals to us because we want to think that our problems are not our fault. And so that's a problem for us. That lie is repeated so much and so often that we as a culture have come to believe it. And then it's used for political power, you know, is the way that goes. But James is warning us, number one, where does temptation come from? Never from God. Don't ever, ever blame God. And then he's telling us temptation is not from God. Temptation, its source is inside of us. Temptation is internal. We are responsible for our desires. And that's what he swings to. Uh, Let me pick this up in verse 14. But each one is tempted. So now he's going to explain it. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust or desire. So each one's tempted when we are carried away and enticed. This carried away and enticed, that enticed, he's using fisher, fisherman language. You know, that's, that's lured, like with a lure, like with bait, that you're enticing them in. As a matter of fact, in our church last hour, Uh, We had Greg Gallagher. Greg Gallagher is the Lake Erie world record holder for smallmouth bass. It just happened last November. We've got his picture up here. He's out fishing on a Friday in November. Uh, he, he, they weren't planning to go fishing, but some cancellations happened. And so uh, he and his son Grant sort of scrambled together. They end up getting out on the lake. They go fishing on their favorite spots. They're doing some fishing. And they're competitive with each other. And Grant is beating Greg 6-2. And then because he's beating his dad, he says, Dad, you need to try one of these other lures. You know, try. And then finally, because he's behind, Greg stops, grabs one of the other lures, tosses that in, and bam, it's hit. He starts reeling in. He realizes, well, this can't be a smallmouth bass. Way too much fight. He brings it in. They get it. They think maybe a sheep said. They don't know. They get it in close to the boat, and they see it, and they're like, whoa, we've got something special here. This is a smallmouth. And they, they fight him in. They get him in. And then they take some pictures. They're saying this whole total God thing that they're even on the lake that day. And then total God thing is, Their GoPro was on filming all this without them even realizing it. So they get to see that. But anyway, and and like they get that thing on and Grant's like, thank you, Jesus. I mean, he's a happy guy. And and Greg pulls this up and they kind of get a weight and it's it's north of nine pounds. And so they normally don't have cell reception out there, but they call and he calls a friend of his. He goes, yeah, we got a big one. Um, you know, you, if you want to see it, you, you know, they're, they're getting ready to maybe release it back. And the guy's like, how big? And he goes, like, well, it's over nine pounds. And the guy goes, well, what's the record? And they, you know, well, I don't know what the record is. We're not here fishing for the record. And the guy looks it up and he says, well, the record's like right at 10 pounds. 
He goes, you should bring that in. So they don't put it back in. They bring it back. They weigh it on a certified scale, 10.15 pounds, the record fish for Lake Erie. So if you want to know to fish, you got to come to first service and look up. He was sitting right back there. And, uh, and he'll tell you. So, and what happened there? Well, they're fishing in the same spot. They'd been fishing there maybe an hour or two. But he changed the lure and tosses it in, and boom. That's the picture that James is using. That's how we are enticed to sin. We see something, and it's desirable. You know, we like it. It, it looks good. We want it. That's the power of the lure. We're enticed. But we never sin except for basically one cause, and that is because you want to sin. We never sin except for you want to do it. You desire that thing. Don't mistake a circumstance, a trial, for the source of sin because the source of sin is inside of each one of us. The source or the cause of sin is the desires inside of you. But now I, let me refine that. So the word for the desire here in that verse 14 is enticed by your lust. Lust is not, not limited to just sexual lust, although it includes that, but all the desires we can have. But it gets a little tricky because desires, you know, are not all bad. As a matter of fact, Eastern religions, they would say, you know, that all passions, all desires are wrong. And so I've talked to monks and stuff in Southeast Asia, you know, and they try to live this life where there is no passion. But that's not, that's not what God says. God wants us to live passionate lives. And God gives us good desires. And uh, there are good passions, good desires. For example, the desire to eat. That's a good desire, right? Because we need food. The desire to rest. God commands us to rest. You know, one day in seven, he's telling us, hey, change it up. Take rest. And so, you know, the desire for sex. That's good within God's laws. But sin comes not from the desire itself, but when we seek to satisfy our desires outside of the boundaries of God's will or God's law. It's like this. Eating is good, but gluttony is bad. Rest is good, but if you do too much of it, laziness is bad. Laziness is sin. Sexual relationship created by God for us. But when we try to satisfy that desire outside of a marital relationship between one man and one woman, then it's wrong, God says, our creator tells us. So here's the tricky part. God can use the external trials, same word, external trusting, uh, testing or trials for our good. He can use circumstances to test us. And in that test, it's possible that we can be tempted inside our own minds. And what we're tempted to do is not trust God. Oh, here's this. I have a desire for something. Here's something that looks like it will satisfy that desire. No, I know God doesn't want me to do that, but maybe God doesn't know what's best for me. That's where we don't follow God. 
And so we can be tempted not to trust God. But when we're tested like that, when we do trust God, our faith grows even stronger. Because God does sometimes test us for our faith, for the purpose of our faith growing stronger. It's what he did with Abraham. But God never entices us to sin. God never dangles bait wanting us to do the wrong thing with it. He doesn't entice us. Rather, we're enticed when we entertain it in our own mind. So if that's what temptation is and where temptation comes from, the next thing we need to answer is how does the battle of temptation work in our head? So more specifically, it's like this. The responsibility for sin is on us because of wrong impulses, desires inside of us. Those wrong impulses can start a battle and ultimately a course of action. That's what James is going to describe. I'm going to back up to verse 14 and do 14 and 15. Check it out. This is the process of sin. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust, desire. Then, when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. See, now's when sin happens, not the temptation, but it gives birth to sin. What? When lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. So here's the thing. We tend to think of sin as a single act. And when we sin physically, a lot of times it is a single act. But sin starts before we do the act. Sin starts in our mind. Sin starts with a battle in our mind. And it's, we back it up, and that's sin when we do it, but it's also sin when we're thinking wrongly about it. So here's how that happens. It's not a single act. It's actually a process that plays out in our head first. At first, it's only a thought confronting the mind. We see something, and because of our internal desires, we think, oh, that would be good. That would satisfy. I would like that. We feel the pull of the bait. But that's not sin yet. We feel the pull. We feel the tug. Oh, that looks good. But nothing's happened yet as far as sin. Temptation is not a sin. But right after that point, if we don't resist by focusing on God's truth, then sin enters the picture. Right then, what happens typically is our Im imagination paints that thing that we desire in brighter colors than it actually is. Because fantasy always exceeds reality. And sin begins as we think of ways to acquire what we desire in a way that God says we, we shouldn't or in a way that's against God's law. So does that make sense? The temptation is not a sin. It's, and, and when we're confronted, even when we feel the pull, that's not sin. It's when we go beyond that, that's when we have a problem, like, like this. All right. 
We've got chocolate cupcakes from Little Debbie, all right? So here's the deal. We look at these, uh, and by the way, is hunger a sin? Who's hungry? Is hunger, yeah, yeah, all right. Who's hungry? Yeah, hunger's not a sin, right? Is eating a sin? No. Is dessert a sin? No, desserts aren't sin. All right, so we, we sin because we start playing with it in our mind. I mean, that's what we do. So we, we think about it, we look at it, and we're like, man, that looks good. And some of you think, that doesn't look so good because this is breakfast time. You know, I, got, I don't eat that. Yeah, well, you just had like four pancakes covered in syrup. This has less calories than that. <laughs> Whatever. But anyway, we look at this and we're like, man, this looks good. We can feel the draw, but there's a point where if this was something that we should not partake of because it was against God's law, we still have the desire, we still see the pull, but then we say, nope, God wouldn't want us to do that for whatever reason. How many of you like these cupcakes? Do you like them? Ah, I didn't make it right there. Yeah, I'm, I'm a terrible throw, terrible throw. Where, where's Nick? Nick Cleveland is in the house. Where's, I can never get it to you, Nick. Here, Nick Cleveland, pastor of Worcester, homegrown right here, Fremont, Ohio. All right, I got it to the aisle. All right, so we, we look at these and it's like, man, that, that looks good. And they tempt us. And then we, we grab it. We grab it. Yeah, we grab it. You know, we, we, we get it, man. We start eating it and we open it up and we're checking it out. And that's, it just starts consuming us. The problem is, as soon as we see it and we shouldn't, we, we should shift our thinking. But if we don't, if we start, wow, there's some weight to these. Hey, are these the ones with like the white stuff on the inside? And we start doing that, and that's a problem. I mean, we are in trouble when we do that. You know, don't, don't do that. The problem comes in when we start saying, well, you know, I, I don't know that I'm going to eat this, but I just want a closer look. And so we, we look at it, and we're like, oh, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's what I thought this was. And then we pull it out, and we go, oh, yeah. Yeah, that, that does look good. And then maybe, you know, we're not going to eat this, but we'll just take like a taste, you know, just to make sure it's like, oh, yeah. Yeah, it's the real stuff right there. <laughs> and the longer we play with this, the harder it is to not do it. And then when we taste it, the harder it is. What's the next thing we do? Well, it's like, well, you know, I took that one little taste. I wonder, oh yeah, yeah, that's good. I haven't even got to the middle part. I mean, there's the filling right there. And we start eating and eating and eating. And then all of a sudden what happens is we get hooked. We get hooked by something that's inside there that we didn't know. You guys haven't eaten any of those, right, that I threw out? Yeah. I'm 99% sure that's the only one with a hook in it. 
we're eating and eating, and then all of a sudden, boom, we're hooked. Because here's the deal. God gives us freedom. We're not robots. God wants us to worship him back, love him back, just like he loves us. We can choose whether to follow God or not. We could choose whether to give in to temptation or not. But we don't get to choose the consequences. We don't get to choose the hook that grabs us. And that's the problem. God is telling us, don't do it. If it's outside his law, don't do it. There's a hook that you can't see. And it's bad for you. Don't do it. That's what he's telling us. And we need to understand that truth and incorporate it into our mind so we will trust God on all of this. You know, when we're tempted, we haven't sinned yet. We just notice a desire. Here's a verse that kind of backs that up, not from James, but from Paul. In Hebrews 4.15, it says this. For we do not, there's a double negative here, so hang with me. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness. That means we do have a high priest who can sympathize. But one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. What's he saying? Jesus was tempted, but without sin. And so we know Jesus was tempted, right? Because we've seen his temptation in the Gospels. But what happens there? He's tempted with food. Remember that? And then, but is it a sin to need food? The correct answer is no here. No. Is it a sin to eat? Yeah, because you're going to hold it now. Jesus, whoa, whoa, yeah, I'm messing you up. Yeah, no, that's, it's not a sin to want food. It's not a sin to be hungry. It's not a sin to eat. But this was being fulfilled in the wrong way because it was Satan offering. And so how does Jesus respond? He responds with God's truth. Jesus has no sin. He cannot be tempted in that way. He cannot be lured. There's a pull. He's hungry. But he remember, He applies God's truth. He resists the sin and chooses to follow God. He does that every single time. He uses God's word. The more we have God's word in our head, the more it helps us. Of course, Jesus didn't need any help, but you know, for us, the more we have God's word in our head, the more we move. We, we talked about the rule of four. If, you, if you're ingesting God's word four days a week, it changes your behavior, studies have shown. So we're without sin when we notice something desirable, but we turn away. If we notice it's desirable and we turn away, there is no sin there. We're tempted, not sin. But if we don't immediately apply God's truth like Jesus did, if we don't immediately apply God's truth and turn away and we start dwelling on it, thinking about it, caressing it, wondering about it, then it is the beginning of sin. We start, that's how the battle's lost. We sin at that point. Not, in, not even, that's before we've even done it. We've already sinned. That's what James is teaching it. It becomes sin in our mind when we play with it. That's when we experience the hook. That's when it's harder 
to not follow through, and that's when we start experiencing the consequences. It's our nature that causes us to feel those longings, desire, cravings. It becomes sinful when our mind encourages that wrong behavior. Sin starts in the mind. It's worse when we act on it. And I say it's sin whether we think it or do it, but sin is worse when we act on it because the consequences are different. We could have consequences for thinking it, but our consequences are greater when we do it, right? Right. If that's how temptation works, then last thing, when can we win against temptation? If that's what it is, if that's where it comes from us, if that's how it works in our head, when can we win against temptation? It's when we are no longer deceived. And where are we deceived? When, when we're no longer deceived in our head. Because this all brings up a sin cycle. Let, let me just throw this out real quick. One of the problems with temptation is that when, when we sin, we've all sinned. When we sin, uh, it, it causes for a Christian guilt and shame. And it makes us feel distant from God. God hasn't gone anywhere, but that's how we feel. And the more we feel guilt and shame and distance from God, then the more vulnerable we are to sin again. It's, it's on, on us. It's our responsibility. But the more we feel that way, we get in this downward cycle. The more guilt and shame and distance we feel with God, then the more likely we are to fall again until temptation. And when we do it again and again, that makes us feel more guilty and more shameful and more distance from God. And it keeps happening. We break that cycle with God's truth. And here's the number one God's truth that you use to break that cycle. After you've fallen from sin, after you've done something and you feel guilty and shame, know this from God's word, God does not love you any less the day after you've done that than he did the day before you did that, right? God loves you the same. God has not gone anywhere. And when we know there is no distance and what God is asking us to do is to admit our sin, God, I did this, or I did this again, and then repent, God, I don't want to do this anymore because you say not to do it. Help me not do it. Then we are set with God, and the guilt and the shame can be gone from us. That's the truth we need. So here's what he's saying. When can we win against temptation? Verse 16 do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Don't be deceived. Well, how are we deceived? When we believe the lies from our culture, the lies from our background, the lies that we tell ourselves that are contrary to God's word. When we believe those lies, we are deceived, and that always leads to wrong behavior. We beat temptation. We win the battle against temptation when we replace those lies in our head with God's truth. And we keep focused on God's truth. And we keep remembering God's truth. And we keep putting into our life God's truth. God doesn't entice us. God only gives us good things. 
That's truth. And that's what James says next in verse 17. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Put it all together. When can we resist temptation? When can we win in the battle of temptation? First of all, when we stop being deceived by taking in God's truth and realizing there's a lie out there telling us we can be satisfied by doing it, by acting out in some way that's contrary to God's laws. It does not work that way. We are never satisfied. It will only destroy us when we go the wrong way. Know God's character. Don't be deceived. Every good gift, every good gift is from God. Every single one. Our creator tells us what's good and he doesn't change. And because he doesn't change, what's good and bad does not change over time. Whatever bait you see, Know that God has something better for you. He designed you. He knows you. He has something better. That's the first thing. Don't be deceived. And then second, remember the word of truth. That's how we're not deceived. He finishes that last verse is verse 18. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we'd be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. This word of truth, it's sort of generally, this is the gospel. He birthed us as believers through the word of truth, the gospel. And the gospel is the good news, the most important message we will ever hear, that Jesus came to rescue us from the penalty of our sin. Because God created us with free choice, free will, so that we can choose to love him back or not. We're not forced to love him back. Love does not force. He creates us with free will. It's a gift. And, when, and then Jesus came, but sin is wrong, and a just and righteous God has to punish sin, so all of us deserve hell for our sins. That's what I deserve. That's what you deserve. We all deserve separation from God forever because he's righteous and holy, and we're sinful. But God loves us so much, he allowed Jesus to come, die on the cross in order to pay our penalty for sin. But that only counts for us when we respond to him the way he says we have to respond, and that is through faith. We have to trust Jesus. And when we do that, Jesus pays our eternal consequences for sin, it's all paid for on the cross. When our faith, our trust is in Jesus, all of our sins are paid for, every single one of them. But he doesn't just free us from the consequences of our sin. Jesus, when we put our faith in him, he frees us from the control of sin in our lives as we take in God's word. Think on God's word. And live it out. When confronted with temptation, when we're confronted with temptation, we have this desire, this inner craving, and it demands action. And here's the deal 
We can resist it or we can indulge it. And if it's something contrary to God's word, we can resist it or we can indulge it. As soon as we start thinking about indulging it, that's sin. If we resist it immediately with the truth of God's word, it's not sin. It's temptation alone. As believers, his truth provides everything we need to fight temptation. He saves us from the control of sin, from the the eternal consequences of sin. And that's how we win the battle for our mind when it comes to temptation. Again, by focusing on his word, we keep doing that. We keep ingesting, not just reading while you're talking about, thinking about something else and you're just covering these words to get a chapter down. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about thinking about what you're reading, how it applies to your life. It will change the way we think, the more we do that. It'll change our behavior. We'll be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Let's, let's pray together. Father God in heaven, God, I ask you that you'd help all of us as believers. Not, not everyone here is a believer, but Lord, those of us who are believers, I pray that you'd strengthen us. Lord, for those who aren't, our friends who are here, not believers, Father, I pray that you'd draw them, help them to see truth, help them to get questions answered so that they can follow you, put their faith in you, trust you. And Father, for those of us who are believers, God, help us to, to understand that satisfaction, we, we never get satisfaction apart from you. Only you satisfy. Or only you can satisfy our desires. You created us. You know us. You know the right way for us to do this. Help us to follow you. Help every single one of us to realize there's nothing better than you. In Christ's name, amen.